I'll never forget the first time I heard the song, Count Your Many Blessings. First time I ever set foot in a local church of Christ. My life would forever be changed after that. My, my dad had repented of his old ways and had been baptized, and we decided to start attending, and we came in late because we were new. We hadn't had that habit down right yet, and as we came in, Bill Sword was leading that song, and I've thought about that song many times throughout the years. We've got a lot to be thankful for, and we've got a lot to uh, count our blessings for. When we, when we do that, life doesn't seem so dark and drear and gloomy, and it's not negative, but we've got a lot to live for. We've got a lot to, to get up for and to, to go out and do. So think about that. Today, many Jews are celebrating Pentecost. So I want to talk about one particular Pentecost about 2,000 years ago that took place in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have this marvelous event that marked the beginning of the church. So I want to talk about that. I only, could only wish that we had the crowd here that they had then, but I'm thankful for those of you who are here. This is nothing that's going to originate from me. I don't believe I should ever preach anything like that. I'm only going to talk about what happened on that day and what those who were filled with the Spirit taught. And so if I say anything that is not in accordance with that, you'd be my friend and take me aside and teach me and show me where I've missed it if I have. But if at the end you realize that you need to make some correction, you need to do something right, why not do that in your life as these did on this day? Begin with me in Acts chapter 2. Appreciate Paul reading this. First, let's talk about the day what the day was, the day of Pentecost. Verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. This day, Pentecost, means 50. It's a transliterated word when it's translated from Greek into English. It means 50, okay? What it represents is 50 days after the Passover. Now, in the Old Testament, it's not exactly called Pentecost. What you hear it called is a feast of harvest, feast of weeks, uh, and so, or feast of first fruits. Now, look at it as an example. Go back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. There were three times in the year that the Jews were to go to Jerusalem. And this day, Pentecost was one of them where they would travel to Jerusalem and observe this yearly feast. Exodus 34, verse 22, says, And thou shalt observe the feast of weeks, of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Thrice in the year shall all your men, children, appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. The one that we're talking about is the Feast of Weeks. The reason why it was called Feast of Weeks is you were to count out seven weeks from the Passover. Look at an example of that. Go back to Exodus 23. In Exodus chapter 23, look at verse 14. 
Here he says, three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's one feast. All right. Then notice verse 16. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors. That's the one we're talking about, which thou hast sown in the field. And the feast of ingathering. So those three. Feast of unleavened bread, feast of harvest, and then the feast of ingathering. Ingathering is also called feast of booths or tabernacles because they observed that, by, that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they lived in uh, booths or, or tents. Passover was whenever they observed that very first uh, situation in Egypt when God told them to sacrifice the Passover lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorpost of their house, and then when the destroyer came over, he would pass over the houses that had the blood on it, and the, the firstborn in that household would not die. But any household that did not have that blood on it uh, would suffer the death of the firstborn and cattle. Interestingly enough, Jesus died about the Passover. Fifty days later, here in Acts 2, we have the first Pentecost after Jesus' death. But now, if you would, go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16, as we can again consider this day of Pentecost as it was taught under the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 says, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord, thy God in the place which he shall choose. That ends up being Jerusalem later. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the Feast of Weeks, in the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, all three are mentioned. But now look at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Here we see how they were to distinguish which day to observe the Pentecost. Leviticus chapter 23, look at verse 15. And you shall count unto you the morrow after the Sabbath. Okay, so you start the morrow after the Sabbath, which would have been Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday, always has been. So you start the, the day after. From the day that you were brought the sheaf of the wave offering, or that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Well, seven times seven is 49, but since it's the morrow after, that's how you get the term 50, 50 days from the Passover. Verse 16, it makes it abundantly clear. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days. So 50 days. So it's, it always ended up on a Sunday. It's interesting. Pentecost was always on a Sunday, the first day of the week. So we know on this day in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, this is the first Pentecost after Jesus' death. The, everyone in, was supposed to gather to Jerusalem to observe this day. It's interesting why God must have chose this day to preach the, have the first gospel sermon preached. This is the beginning of the church. And this is when the promise of the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. So I want, you to show, I want to show you how all of that happened on this day and why that's important. But in verse 1 in chapter 2, when he says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they... 
We've got to ask the question, who is they? Who is the they that were all come in one accord in one place? Well, if you go back to the verse before it, those chapter breaks were added there by men. So if you go, go to the verse right before it, verse 26 of chapter 1. They gave for their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. What they were doing is they were choosing someone to take Judas's place as an apostle. And it says he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So now when he says, when they... Well, who's the they referred to? The apostles. When the apostles were gathered together. And also to further that, you've got to understand that Jesus had told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for this promise. Go back to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 2, it says that Jesus began to do and teach things until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given a commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, there were 12 apostles at that time, but since Judas had hung himself, now there's 11. So then that, there in that chapter, that's whenever they're about to choose someone to take his place. But notice verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. Who did Jesus appear to? Well, he appeared to more than just the apostles, but he's, he's capitalizing on that here, that these apostles, what were their function? What, what was they supposed to do? They were to act as witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Who better to do that than someone who had been with him for the three and a half years of his ministry? Who better to have heard him teach, to have witnessed the miracles. And who better than to have seen him after his resurrection and got to see him with their own eyes and got to touch him with their hands and feel the wounds from the nails and the spear that went into his side. Who better than to see him go up into heaven right before their eyes, these men of Galilee who were apostles. And so verse 4, and being assembled together with them, well, again, who's the them so far? Well, that's the apostles. Commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Well, who was to, to stay in Jerusalem? The apostles were. Why? Why were they in Jerusalem? Well, I know that everybody else was in Jerusalem for the Pentecost, but that's not why the apostles were there. They were there because the Lord told them to wait in Jerusalem till you receive this promise of the Holy Spirit. And you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. He's promising to the apostles that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. All right, now in verse 8, what's going to happen whenever they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Verse 8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. These apostles are about to receive this promise that he gave to them. And it was going to empower them as witnesses in that way. Also, go, go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, Jesus had given this same command. I want to note, you to notice this from this passage. Luke chapter 24. After
after Jesus died, and he's talking with his apostles, and he's telling them about waiting for this promise, he's, he's opening their understanding of what the Scripture said about him, that he is the Christ, things that were written by Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets concerning him, that he would die, he would be buried, and he'd rise again. But then verse 47, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with the power from on high. He's telling them, don't go home. Don't go back to wherever you normally would go. Stay in Jerusalem until you receive this promise. And it happened to be 50 days later when the Jews would have gathered together at this great feast. We have a large multitude gathered together now. Going back to Acts chapter 2, we see this is exactly what takes place on this day of Pentecost. The apostles are gathered together in verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who was doing the speaking? The apostles were. They were the ones who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. They were the ones who, to whom it was promised, and they were the ones to whom th that start speaking in these other languages. When it says in tongues, that's what that means. Because there were people who were present from all over. He says from uh, every nation under verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when he goes down through that list, all of those lists of names that Paul pronounced really well, all of those people from those places, why was it taking the time to name that? Because they would have spoke different languages, even though they were Jews. They lived in these different places and spoke these languages. It wasn't some unintelligible language. It wasn't gibberish. These were languages that they spoke. By the way, they said, How hear we every man in the language in which we are born? Now notice in verse 4 who was doing the speaking. The apostles were the ones who began to speak in these, in these languages. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Then notice verse 7. The people were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Well, the apostles were Galileans. Do you remember in, in Matthew chapter 4 when he called the fishermen? He was in Galilee. Look that up. It was, it was the Galilean fishermen who he named as his apostles and told to follow him. Not only that, go back to chapter 1 of Acts. After he had, Jesus had spoken to his apostles and ascended up in their sight in a cloud, verse 11 says of Acts chapter 1, the angels that were there said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. He's talking to these Galilean apostles. 
So the ones who were speaking were Galileans, not the people from all of these other nations. The people from the other nations were hearing them speak, hearing the apostles speak. And the apostles were speaking in the different languages. Then verse 11. After naming these people, they said, We do hear them speak in our languages or tongues, the wonderful works of God. So again, the apostles were doing the speaking. Not only that, verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them. Who was doing the talking? The, the twelve apostles, Peter and the other eleven. Peter plus eleven is twelve. So the twelve apostles were doing the speaking. They were the ones who were baptized with the Holy Spirit as he promised them to empower them as witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Why that's so important is to show that they are the ones with the message. Jesus had promised in John 14, 15, 16. He would send another comforter unto them, those present. Look at that context and see. It was at the Last Supper speaking to the apostles there, promising to them that they would receive another comforter he says in that passage, He will guide you into all truth. And He will remind you of the things I've been teaching you, and He will tell you things to come. Who's He going to remind of things He's been teaching them? Not you and me. He's reminding those who He had been teaching. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring to their remembrance what Jesus had taught them and teach them new teaching. Now, when the apostles have given that to us, we have the Holy Spirit's teaching. And so when we follow that, we, we are following the Holy Spirit. But they received it in that manner, in a way that you and I didn't receive it. Now, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's different. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit and had this ability to speak with these other languages. And so now they're being empowered as witnesses to tell of Christ's resurrection. And it's a marvelous occasion. He's got this great multitude. I don't know how many would have been there. I know how many obeys at the end, but I don't know how many were actually present. Some sources guess it could have been a million to three million people present. I don't really know. But a large group of people, and they're from all over. And he says in verse 14, now I want to talk to you after talking to you about the the day and the people who are doing the speaking, I want to talk to you about the sermon. Let's consider what was said that day. They preached Jesus. In verse 14, Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Imagine you were there. Try to imagine for a moment. If we want the message that they received, then the message is still for you and I. So we could ask you to listen to what Peter is saying here. Let it sink in concerning Jesus. Verse 15. These are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Some people there obviously were questioning what all this was about where the apostles were speaking in these different languages. Are they drunk? 
Well, he makes a very good argument. It, they're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day, which would have been about 9 a.m., the way we think of it. Too early. They're not drunk. But what's taking place is they are receiving what Joel spoke of in Joel chapter 2. Now, if you go to Joel chapter 2, verses 30, 28 to 32, you can read what Peter is quoting now. I'm going to quote it from Peter's point of view, though, from Acts 2. He's, he's quoting from Joel. What's amazing is this is 830 years before this event. And Joel, with the eyes of prophecy, was able to look into the future, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write these words. It shall come to pass, verse 17, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That event is being fulfilled on that day because... Peter said in verse 16, this is that which he spoke of. You know, there's some prophecies you might read and say, when is that? When did that come to pass? What is he talking about here? But make no mistake about it here. This is, this is so abundantly clear. He says this is what Joel was talking about. That in the la Now to Joel, 830 years later would be the latter days to him. And so when he's saying in the last days, he's not meaning the days right before Jesus returns, he's meaning later than when he wrote it, a good bit later, over 800 years later, specifically. So, now it's coming to pass. The apostles are uh, being filled with the Spirit to speak in these languages, and the signs in heaven is figurative. It's not literal. The blood and fire and vapor of smoke and, and, and all of that, that's prophetic language. But then verse 21, it shall come to pass, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody, no matter who you are, no matter your race, no matter your nation, nationality, no matter your language, anybody can be saved. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. Now we'll talk about in a minute what that means. It's more than just simply saying, Lord, Lord, because Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So calling on the name of the Lord is more than just pronouncing his name. But we'll talk about that in a minute. In verse 22, he now begins to say, Look, let me talk to you about Jesus. What you just saw is what Joel said, but now let me tell you about Jesus. And look what he says about him. Verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. You know, that's important. How can you have faith unless you believe? How will they believe without a preacher? We've got to hear, and you and I have got to hear. 
the words that he's saying to them. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. What's he say? I want to tell you about that man named Jesus. Yes, he was a man, but he's more than a man. And how do we know that? Because of what he did. Even Nicodemus in John 3 made a similar remark. We know you are a teacher come from God because no man can do these miracles unless God be with him. Jesus went about doing good, as Acts 1 said. Think about the things that he did that nobody else could do without the anointing of God. So he has to be the Christ. He has to be the anointed. He healed the sick. He healed the lame, people who were lame from birth. He walked on the water. He healed the blind. He healed a woman with the issue of blood. He healed a, a nobleman's son without even being present. He healed Jairus' daughter. He healed a Canaanite woman's daughter. He healed people who were f filled with devils and cast them out. He did all manner of miracles. Now, these miracles were not sleight of hand because they were all immediate. They were all complete healing. There, there was no medical intervention. And there were people, even the enemies of Christ, were present as he healed them. And so because of the things that he did, who could, else could he be? There's something special about him. He's more than just a man. People who say, well, Jesus was just a good philosopher. He, he's, like, he's like Socrates or he's like Plato or, or somebody like that. Just a, just a philosopher who taught people. No, he's more than that. And anybody that thinks that Jesus was just a good man but not the Lord... I have to ask you this. Do good people go around claiming they're the Lord? Do good people go around claiming they're the Son of God? No, those are liars. And those are charlatans. So you can't have it both ways. So either you believe he is who he claimed to be, or you don't. He can't be a good, just a good man. I believe that he was the Son of God because of what he did. There were eyewitnesses that saw it. And here's the greatest of all. After he was crucified, he arose, and he appeared before so many people. And that's what he says in verse 23. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You know, it's, what's interesting is some people might say that Jesus must have been weak because he let them kill him that's not it he told Pilate you couldn't do this if I didn't allow it I'm paraphrasing I could call 12 legions of angels and my, but my kingdom's not of this world if it were my servants would fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews Jesus could have overpowered them but he let them because he had to, to make the sacrifice for you and I because he loved us.
And what that does for me is it, I've got to now see I'm to blame of why he went to the cross. He did not just go to the cross for the murderers and the rapists. He didn't just go to the cross for those wicked people out there besides me. He went there for me. And you've got to realize, he was on that cross because of you. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Until you realize he died on that cross because you broke God's commandments. You rejected God. You bear guilt. Sin and the wages of sin is death. You've got to first realize that. How can you appreciate the gift that he is offering you until you first realize what you caused? And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now we might be reading this and you might say, Andy, I wasn't there. I wasn't one of those that said crucify him. I wasn't one of the ones that nailed, him, nailed his hands and his feet. I didn't spit in his face. I didn't hurl the insults. But you are the reason why he was there. You are the reason. He would not have done that if you had not done what you did. And so verse 4, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now he's going to talk about the resurrection. And this is one of the, the, this is the foundation of our faith. There is nobody, or Jesus, I said this, Jesus is not buried in that tomb. His body is not there. He appeared to above 500 brethren at once, 1 Corinthians 15 says. But he appeared and was able to be seen. But also, the prophets spoke of this. Verse 25, David being one of them. Now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. The next section that I'm going to read is from Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. This is about a thousand years before Jesus. And David said, concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that word hell is Hades. Some of your translations may say Hades. This is not Gehenna hell fire. Okay. So Jesus did not go to hell fire he went to the grave which is Hades because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption Jesus went into the grave but he wasn't there long enough for his body to, to corrupt or to, to decay and verse 28 thou hast made known to me the ways of life thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance now here's the thing I think a lot of Jews would have read that Psalm 16 and thought David's talking about himself. So this is why in verse 29, Peter 
talking about this psalm, says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Actually, it would have not been far from where he was when he was preaching. Could have probably pointed in that direction and said, It's right over there, or it's within this vicinity. But he's buried, and he's still there. His body's still there. But now, verse 30, Therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And that's a quote from Psalm 132 in verse 11. Now, in referring to this psalm about not allowing his Holy One to see corruption, what's it really about? That he would, he's really talking about Jesus raising from the dead and Jesus sitting on his throne, and that's what he's about to show and prove. Verse 31, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So he's saying, David's not talking about himself. When David said, that will not leave my soul in hell, nor allow your holy one. The holy one, he's not talking about himself in the third person. Sometimes the psalmist does that, where he'll speak about himself in a third person format. But Peter's saying that's not what he's doing. He's talking about Jesus. Verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Wherefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost he has shed for this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself... So now he's making the point. It's not about David. It's about Jesus. Then he introduces another psalm, Psalm 110. I invite you to write that down. Read that psalm. It's about the kingship and priesthood of Christ. It's also quoted in Hebrews we've been talking about. Those of you familiar with that. But he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord. Okay, David is saying this. But what does that mean? The Lord said unto my Lord. David's talking. David says, the Lord, that'd be the Father, said to my Lord, that'd be David's Lord, which would be Christ. So the Father said to the Son, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Where is Jesus now? What did he just say? That he raised up of the fruit of David's loins, Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of David. That's why Matthew 1 talks about Jesus being of the lineage of David and proves it. Because he's a of the lineage of David, he is of the fruit of David's loins, he's a descendant, and he is on his throne in heaven. And he's going to be there until he makes all enemies his footstool. And then verse 36, he brings the message home. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, you really have to understand what Peter is doing. He's proving by Joel and by at least three Psalms that Jesus is the one spoken of 
that would happen at these events. That it's all about him. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Jesus is now raised, and he's now king, and he's now on his throne. Now, if you had been a Jew on that day, and you realized we are to blame because we crucified the king of kings, what reaction would you have? Would you have had the response that they did in verse 37? Would you have said, Oh, I wish my brother had been here to hear this lesson. Would you say, Oh, I wish my mom would have been here to hear this lesson. Or would you say, What shall we do? When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You can only ask for such a response if you realize what Jesus has done for you and you realize that he's died for you and he's risen for you to give you a hope in heaven. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to walk away and say good lesson but not do anything about it? Are you going to walk away? How, how can you just sit there? How can you hear this and know this in your heart that this is true and know that Jesus is the Christ and know by the way that you're living, you're not pleasing him until you've put him on. You need to make your life right with him. But here's the beauty of it. You can be forgiven. As he said, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's how you call on the name of the Lord, verse 38. Here was Peter's answer. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What a marvelous thing. You've caused a lot of damage. How is God going to view us that we caused the Son of God's death and then we reject it? And we don't even want his sacrifice. We don't want to apply his blood. We make it out like it's nothing. Or we keep living the way we're living. And we trample underfoot the Son of God. Act like it doesn't even matter. We don't respect what he did. He gave his life for us. Or are you going to be moved as these men did? And say, what am I going to do about it? I've got to do something about this. Well, here's the answer. Repent. And be baptized. What is repentance? It means change your ways. If you've been lying, stop lying. If you've been stealing, stop stealing. If you've been rejecting the Lord, stop rejecting Him. Stop pushing Him away. He will forgive you. Remission of sins. How many people think of remission when it comes to cancer as a wonderful thing? How many people think but th this is talking about a complete removal. Never to be held against you. You can be forgiven. But you've got to repent. And you've got to be baptized. Now you can't say, well, I'm going to repent but not be baptized. You've got to do both. You can change your life. As these men did. Verse 39 for the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. 
Anybody can. Whosoever shall call on the Lord shall be saved. But here's how you do it, by repenting and being baptized. There was more that he said, verse 40. But then, verse 41, look, what the, look at the great response. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Can you gladly receive this word? That Jesus has died for you and you can be forgiven. If you do, you will have the same response they did. Why would you not want to be baptized? If baptism is for the remission of sins, why not be baptized? But then once you're baptized, that's not it. You need to continue. As verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That's what is being offered to you. You do that, and then you can have a family. You can have a, a family that you can walk together with in unity and love as they did. They were together. They had all things common. They weren't just dunked, and then they went away, and they quit. But they were baptized, and now they've changed their life, and now they're following him. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. It would be a cause of great joy. The angels can be rejoicing with us. If you will receive the salvation and that promise, just as they did, it's available to you just as it was to them. It's the same gospel plan of salvation for every person. Anyone can be saved by the same simple plan. This is the beginning of it. This is the beginning of that church. And you can be a part of that. The one you read about in the Bible. There were no denominations then. There were no such things as that. They were simply followers of God. They were simply baptized believers. In verse 44, all that believed were together and had all things common. You can have that. And the simple truth that was presented that day. Why not do that? And if you've done that and you've sinned but you need prayers, we're here to help you while we stand and as we sing.